when I wasn't at work. I was at home reading Twitter, talking to the community. I wasn't getting paid for that. That was just something I did. And I just, I was just, I just really got burnt out, to be honest. And I kind of realized that if I was going to give 16 hours of my day to anything, it should probably be like my own company. You're listening to the You Might Be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Todd, an average everyday girl with a nine to five job and a passion for storytelling. This podcast takes you behind the scenes in discovering truly inspiring personal success stories from all kinds of individuals and how they paved their way into becoming their own version of a badass. I speak with entrepreneurs, nine to fivers, stay-at-home moms, athletes, and everyone in between. My goal is to discover the different depths in which we define what it means to be successful. Success means something different to every person, and ultimately, if you're pursuing your passions and living life to the fullest, you too just might be a badass. The topic of sustainability seems to have come to the forefront of conversations lately especially when it comes to fashion and the way that we buy and get rid of our clothing. On a personal level, I love the increased focus on ways that we consume things and how buying secondhand can be both beneficial for our wallets as well as the planet. That may sound a little extreme, but when you stop to think of any major shopping brand, where does everything go at the end of the season when it's too hot for sweaters or animal print is no longer in season? In today's episode, my guest Janelle and I cover this very subject in a wider discussion of what it means to be mindful about the clothes that we buy. From working at the United Nations to flexing her creativity in the gaming and tech world, Janelle truly has done it all. Her latest venture takes her away from her corporate job to become the founder of Stellari, a sustainable women's apparel startup. Her plans to launch her business were put on hold when COVID hit the U.S. earlier this year. And instead, she has put her focus on creating face masks for those who need it most. As a bonus, she has given all of my listeners a discount for 15% off your entire order through November 10th of this year. Just head over to Stellari.com, that's S-T-E-L-L-A-R-I.com, and enter the code BADASS. 2020. Hello, hello, Janelle. Hi. Hi, how are Thanks you? Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. On a beautiful Wednesday afternoon. It's, it's not bad. Are you in Los Angeles? It's, it's okay today. <laughs> I know it's actually been a little bit um, with the fog in the morning. Yeah. It's starting to tease a little bit of fall. A little bit. I, I kind of forget that, you know, it's snowing in other parts of the country. I, so <laughs> I know. I know. Um, where in L.A. are you? Uh, I'm in downtown Los Angeles um, near the Fashion District. Oh, really cool. Yeah. I'm uh, I'm in Sun Valley, just on the opposite side of... I know when people think Sun Valley, it sounds like Idaho, but <laughs> I'm definitely not there. I'm on uh, the opposite side of the Burbank Freeway. Oh, okay. Okay, cool. Um, so not too far, but just enough, just enough out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's Los Angeles, you know, it's one of those things that even when you're close, everything feels so far away. <laughs> oh, yes, that's for sure. Um, well, let's, let's just go ahead and dive right in. Why don't you tell us a little about who you are? Um, what, what it is that you do, your name, occupation, all of the, the basics. Hi, my name is Janelle Wavel Jimenez. Um, I am the founder of a small sustainable clothing company called Stellari. Uh, we just launched um, in our soft launch in June. Um, and prior to that, I worked in video games and tech for about 10 years. And before that, I worked at the UN. So I've done a lot of <laughs> crazy things in my life, but I guess right now I would just call myself um, a startup founder. Wow. Yeah, definitely uh, different ends of the spectrum <laughs> in terms of uh, your your background and what you've what you've gotten your feet wet with. Um, we'll dive into some of those individually, um, but I'd love to just know kind of the level set from the beginning as a, a story or a book, if you will. Um, 
what was it like kind of starting out in the culprit world? Um, what did you study in school and then, yep. and then take us from there? Yeah. So, um, Actually, to kind of begin my story, I have to kind of start with high school um, and not college because high, I have, um, I feel like all of my entrepreneurial dreams and desire to make an impact on the world started there. Um, I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana in the 80s um, as uh, the only, one of the only Asian people in my um, high school. And I felt very... Um, I like I felt really isolated and trapped. Um, mm. There was yeah, there were people who were racist, but it wasn't really that. It was just like I don't know. I felt like I didn't belong, I guess. Um, and it yeah. was you know a cultural clash between my parents were Filipino immigrants and you know me and my friends were Americans. It's like what did I want to do? And my parents um, came to the U.S. and they worked like. 12 to 16 hour days and both of them were just like you need to be your own boss that is the only way to get ahead in America you have to you don't ever want anyone to be your boss and so it got really in my brain really young that like I need to be my own boss but you know like I also had these ideas of like I want to change the world and I want to travel and I want to like do all these things and so for whatever reason I got it in my head when I was quite young like 12 or 13 that I wanted to work at the UN um, and like you know that's not really having a boss I mean it totally is but you know like in my head that was that was like this was different right and I decided that I was gonna um, major in international relations for um, college. So I went to USC. I majored in international relations and Japanese um, language and culture, sort of focused on economic development in Asia. And um, after I graduated, I actually moved to Japan, worked in a rural city hall um, in a part of Japan that I would describe as maybe like West Virginia, very traditional uh, pretty conservative, remote, very remote. People in Japan don't even know where it is. Um, and I got to work at the city hall trying to help internationalize um, the community. And it, the Japanese government sponsors this. And it was it was it was challenging. Um, I'm not gonna lie. Um, but it was like I don't know. I felt really good because this was like that stepping stone to the UN. This is gonna be my dream. Um, so after that, after three years there. Um, I, I moved to New York. Um, I got a job at the permanent mission um, of Japan to the United Nations, which is basically like the Japanese embassy to the United Nations um, mm -hmm. in New York. So I was working for the Japanese government and, you know, I was doing things in the political section. I got to work on all these neat anti-terrorism um, like um, projects. And it was, it was really cool. And this, this like, the perfect sort of path to like, oh, you're going to go and work in the State Department, you're going to work at the UN or the World Bank or whatever. But within like 18 months, I was like, I have made the worst mistake of my life. Oh, no. I, this is, this is terrible. I hate this job. I don't want to do this. I've just spent all this money on these degrees. I have all this job experience that is like, you know, quote unquote worthless. I'm 28 yeah. and I've ruined my life. Um, <laughs> and like, that's like, very much how I felt. Um, and, you know, when I look back at it now, um, obviously I didn't ruin my life. And I don't think anyone at 28 can really ruin their life just for making like the wrong job decision. Um, I think yeah. there's just like so much pressure on people in the US, uh, people who are like essentially just teenagers to try and make this like perfect choice of what you want to do 40 years from now. Um, Absolutely. And I honestly think I. I didn't know, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And I really wouldn't have had any idea that, you know, my dreams of working at the UN or in like a big non-government um, organization like that would be so counter to the way I worked until I did it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the issue was I just had this like entrepreneurial mindset that doesn't really... Um, does it really work with uh, working at the UN? I, I, I can't just like go rogue and sure. yeah. <laughs> like come up with my own proposals for things. It's um, it was very, very hierarchical, very like this is 
our stance on this thing. Like it was not my position um, to try to argue uh, with diplomats, like absolutely not. So it, it just really didn't work for me. Um, and at that time, I just, I really didn't know what to do because I, the job experience I had basically only set me up to work for another Japanese company. Um, because like, you know, who's going to call your references that are in Japan? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I had always been a big gamer, was on the internet since like the mid 90s. And I just happened to be in the right time and place for um, the boom of social media, basically. Um, it was it was like 2010, people just kind of realized they couldn't have their like nephew run their Fortune 500 social media <laughs> account. But there's nobody at that time who had six years of social media experience because Facebook just launched three years earlier. But because I had basically spent like my teenage years making Sailor Moon fan fiction websites and blogs and all this oh stuff. God, I, I, love I, it. <laughs> I, I knew a lot of the things that people needed to know about how to buy ads, how to do SEO. And I was able to just kind of hop from tech job to tech job. Um, so yeah, I, I, I mean, I feel like when I finally moved from like working in sort of a non-government slash government position to the corporate world, it was, it was kind of a shock actually. I, I completely bet. Yeah. I, first of all, I love that you, number one, knew what you wanted to be when well, you were 12. <laughs> theoretically. At the time. At the time. Yeah. But yeah. like, how cool is that? I feel like when you, or at least when I think back about like what I wanted to be or like, you know, kind of the classic answers, there was always, you know, I want to be a firefighter. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be, you know, some, some things that are kind of like reaching for the stars. So I love that you knew that, but something that I'm hearing consistently in your story is that you are able to listen to yourself, right? You recognized when it was time to pivot because you weren't happy. And I think a lot of people can kind of resonate with the fact that they got to a place in their career and they thought like, oh my God, what did I just do? Or like, right. what, how do I, how do I get away from this? Right, right. And like you said, you feel like you honestly have wasted all of this time. And in reality, it's just kind of building blocks for something yeah, else. Exactly. I think one of the tough things, because I, I do hear that, like, wow, I, I can't believe you knew what you wanted to do at 12. <laughs> and like, like, I think on one hand that was like, I, I mean, my personality type is to be pretty like goal oriented, but I think what was challenging is because I'd spent like 15 years. Oh God, when I think of it that way, I spent like nearly 15 <laughs> years telling people I'm going to work at the UN. I'm going to work at the UN. This is my goal. This is my goal. And then I got there. And then within 18 months, I had to be like, um, <laughs> not for me, not so for me. <laughs> maybe you were right when I, you know, because you, you, I heard constantly like, oh, what are you going to do with an international relations degree and stuff like that? And I'd be like, oh, I'm going to work at the UN. And then I did it. And then it was like, oh, but I don't want to do this anymore. I, first of all, I hate when people do that. Like, I know. <laughs> they put their own opinions on somebody else when clearly like that's what you wanted to do. You were so yeah. passionate about it. You were seeking a degree for it specifically. Oh, that makes me so mad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, so I like, I understand that. I, I feel the same way. I understand that um, people who say that are trying to be well-meaning, but sure. it, they don't Different realize, way to go about it. yes, they don't realize yeah. that by saying stuff like that, you could actually be convincing somebody not to go down a certain path, which is, is why I am where I am now, because I had been convinced when I was younger that I couldn't go into, you know, a creative field like art or fashion or design because, mm -hmm. you know, quote unquote, it would make me money or something like that. You know, there's some reason. So sometimes when people were thinking they had, you know, your best interest, they were, they're probably not going about it the most helpful way. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I mean, honestly, like, even if I am not necessarily using my international relations degree right now, I think there were a lot of skills that I learned, um, both from college and from the, the like four years that I, five years that I spent 
um, doing that stuff that, I mean, still help me today. There's a lot of research um, capability that I've, I've learned ways to like vet um, information that I'm hearing, um, ways to look at sort of government policies and global economics around the world to make good decisions about where to take my business. So I do think like it wasn't all you know, it wasn't all for nothing, <laughs> even if yeah. I want to be negative about it. Well, I think even at a basic level too, like communication is yes. probably the forefront of that. And you can literally use that in anything that you do. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I got my degree in that. And I, you know, I feel like I, I would have loved to have more of a, um, an in-person experience to kind of build that versus taking some of the courses that I did, but right means to an end. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, well, so at first when I was kind of looking at your, um, your background and, you know, where you've been, I thought like, whoa, kind of that shift, like you were just talking about the shift from the UN into gaming and tech, like, like did not see the connection, but after kind of hearing you like talk through some of those skill sets, that's, that's kind of the, the main reminder is like, you can always pull what you've built as pieces of your foundation for the next thing. Absolutely. Um, Um, Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh yeah. I mean, something that um, I sometimes um, get from people like students who are still in college is they ask me like, do I need to be an engineer or an artist to go into the gaming industry or tech? And I think, you know, we have a tendency to think of tech as just like STEM jobs like you need to be an engineer and like that's that's not true every company needs lawyers they need um, they need accountants they need marketing people they need brand people they need product people they need international business experts so it was the pivot to gaming actually wasn't as hard as um, I would have thought because because I had the Japan market experience I was able to join gaming companies as basically an Asian market expert, which, um, you know, is, is a pretty weird niche, but it, it exists. Absolutely. If, if there's a void to be filled, somebody <laughs> will. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I do want to talk about your most recent job, um, within the gaming sphere over at Riot Games. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit that about that. You were a, a product manager there. Yeah. So, um, I, uh, I joined Riot because they had um, a Jap- uh, they had a role that my Japanese friend actually sent to me, and it was a Japan publishing manager, um, which basically meant they wanted somebody to help launch the Japan office, um, evaluate the market, um, and just work on getting the game uh, League of Legends over there. And so that was basically a perfect role. I loved the game. Yes, I- <laughs> my eyes are like widening. Yeah. I'm like, oh my god, it was made it was- for you. Yeah, exactly. It was like my favorite game at the time um it was a bit of like marketing which i've been doing um in tech companies uh for the past two three years before and it was um, a japan expert role which i had done for years before and so yeah i i got in basically because i was able to tell them the truth about what it would mean to to enter the japanese market instead of telling them what they wanted to hear mm. um i told because i told them it was going to be really really hard because they had a product that was very different than what the japanese game uh game community normally plays um and so when i joined uh they didn't actually have the japan office ready so i helped out um on southeast asia uh regions and so i helped six different regions um with product and marketing decisions. Um, and then I became a brand manager, brand marketing manager, and then I became a product manager. So okay. I, when I was at Riot in six years, I kind of got to do everything on League of Legends. Um, and my last role was was like my, I'm gonna say it again, was my dream job again, um, which was <laughs> making, making skins in a video game. Okay. Tell me what that means. What is a skin? Uh, Sorry, uh, I, yes. I don't play games. No worries. I. I I realized that um, a lot of people are like, wait, what's a skin? Because it does sound kind of weird. So a skin is essentially, um, I know it sounds really weird, but it's basically a digital outfit for a character. So like in in Fortnite um, or League of Legends or many games, um, you know, you have a character that you're playing. And so what you can do is you can pay real money to buy basically a new outfit for your characters. And, you know, when I tell people this, they're kind of like, 
who does that? And I mean, the the, the answer is, is that um, League of Legends, uh, like, estimates like a billion dollars a year uh, on digital outfits, um, essentially. And yeah, it, it's crazy. Uh, yeah, my mind is a little bit blown. So what, um, sorry, I have so many questions. <laughs> what is the is kind of the motivator for somebody to buy a new skin? So I think that depends on the game and also depends on the gamer. There's there's different kinds of uh, motivations. Um, and I think, you know, that's that's what made me particularly good as a product manager. Um, there, there are people who just like buying things to sort of flex or brag. Um, it's uh, particularly popular in China, for example, to pay, to have like the $200 skin super rare and just be like look at me i'm all gold i've got this gold skin um so you know there's people who kind of like showing that off just like you know having you know a supreme or yeezys or something and um there are people who just like they like a character but maybe aesthetically they didn't like how it looked before and they don't want to be red they want to be green um those are people who don't typically buy a lot of skins because they're really just doing it to fix fix quote unquote one aspect that they didn't like before so it's a little bit of personalization and then there's people and these were the ones that I felt like I had the most connection to because this is who I am is they feel very attached to their character and they want to see their character in sort of different fantasies so if my character is normally a um, an archer from the frozen north maybe i want to see her as a witch or maybe i want to see her in modern day clothing or maybe i want to see her as a pop star and so i i I personally as a product manager um really loved working on projects that were very like this is an alternate fantasy of this character so you can really express who you actually are i guess yeah i love that that sounds so fun yeah, I mean, I, I personally loved it um, because I think it was a really good blend of a lot of my skill sets. I, as a product manager um, on a game that is global, I had to look at a lot of data to see, um, all right, Chinese players like this kind of thing. American players like this kind of thing. When we make this outfit, like, who are we targeting? Who are we not targeting? Like, what trade-offs are we making? Um, and then also just getting to work with artists was amazing because, you know, I, I didn't make the skins. I was just the product manager. So it's kind of like, I don't know, in a lot of ways being like a director in a movie because a director, I mean, there's always, you know, directors who do everything, but generally a director is kind of a vision holder who sort of sees how the movie's going to play out, but they're not necessarily the person behind the camera they're not the person who wrote the script they're not the person who acted it out um but (laughs) if it's really bad it's probably their fault (laughs) (laughs) that's fair yeah um and if it's really good it's probably not really because of them it's because of everyone else it's it's one of these um slightly thankless jobs i think especially in gaming um but i don't know i really i liked it nothing made me feel better than just like seeing my team do amazing things and feeling proud of them for just like making stuff that people wanted to cosplay or dress up as for Halloween or something. Yeah. I feel like that is a really, you know, rewarding job in that you're watching it come to life. You can physically see people experience and enjoy and, you know, have that elevate their experience so much more. Yeah, for sure. You did say a couple of times that it was your perfect job. <laughs> um, so what was kind of the turning point for you where you ultimately decided that you wanted to leave your your quote-unquote nine-to-five? Yeah. Um, I, think, I think it was a perfect job in theory, but I think I worked in ways – that were not um, healthy for me, I think. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think the culture at Riot Games, um, for better or worse, really encourages people who are extremely passionate to sort of give everything um, to the company. And on the plus side, that means you get really amazing um, 
amazing skins and amazing game. You have developers who are also people who play the game. So I think that's kind of the connection that a lot mm-hmm. of uh, the community has with League of Legends. But on the downside, it also means that um, somebody like me was basically giving Riot Games like 16 hours a day. Um, physically, emotionally, mentally, you know, when I wasn't at work, I was at home reading Twitter, talking to the community. I wasn't getting paid for that. That was just something I did. Um, And I just, I was just, I just really got burnt out, to be honest. And I kind of realized that if I was going to give 16 hours of my day to anything, it should probably be like my own company. Yeah, I mean, it circles back to what your parents talked about when you were, when you were younger of, you know, and especially now you've built all of this, like going back to the same thing, yeah. you've built all of these skill sets. So like, why not be able to do that now right, on your own time? Right. You know? Yeah. Basically. Um, so you, you do consult do. Um, within this realm, but I do want to talk about um, now your, your project that you've been working on for quite some time. And I know that you're, you know, you've stalled it just a little bit in terms of what you initially were hoping for. Um, so tell me, tell me about your, your clothing line. Yeah. So I, um, when I was working at Riot and working at tech, I just started noticing that for women in tech or women in gaming, like we often travel a lot and have to carry around, um, peripherals, you know, laptops, um, microphones, you know, the usual stuff. But a lot of uh, gamer women are carrying these massive headsets like I'm wearing right now with like, it's, <laughs> it's not it's not like Apple pods. It's like a full on headset with a microphone and, you know, a really beefy laptop. And I just kept seeing my friends with these, you know, they're super cute, amazing outfits, but they were carrying around like a really ugly free backpack from whatever startup <laughs> they worked from and they'd yeah. always be like I wish I could find something I liked but I can't and it just you know in my head I was just like I don't know why we can't why is this so hard um and it sort of finally came to a head for me when I had to take a business trip to Paris which was a city I'd always wanted to go to like kind of obsessed with France um And in my dreams, I would have been walking around in like a leather jacket, like a scarf, really cool (laughs) boots. I don't know, a baguette under my arm. I don't know. Just like, absolutely. Um, I I just like (laughs) had this dream of that. But the reality is I had to get off a plane um, after like, you know, 16 hours or more, had to immediately go to a hotel, which was two hours away from the, um, airport and then I had a meeting which was like two hours away from the hotel and then I had to go to an event and then I had to go to dinner so I, it's not like I could carry three different outfits around with me or even go back and change so I was basically running around Paris on my first day with like a like a Jansport backpack no offense to Jansport but a Jansport mm. backpack and I know like, what you mean. yeah basically like <laughs> hiking clothing because that was the only thing that was comfortable enough to wear on a plane and all day and not be super like smelly or whatever and like that's the only shoes that were comfortable but when I was I I never dressed like that in normal life and so there was just something about being in this really fashion forward cool city where I felt like a tourist which is something I don't like feeling like either not just from like an aesthetic point of view but just like a safety point of view like it just like as a woman I, I don't think people understand how like scary it can be to be traveling alone and feel like you stick out and that people are sort of targeting you because you look like you don't belong um, because you look like a tourist. Um, And I just remember being like, there has got to be a way that I could have walked into that Michelin star restaurant and not felt like completely out of place. And I just started thinking like, how hard would it be to, to make a backpack like and how hard would it be to make a dress that actually had like not just pockets that like actually were in like a good space and were nice and deep but like a pocket that zipped so my stuff doesn't fall out of it when I sit down um and I think every woman (laughs) knows how valuable pockets in a dress are right 
And like, like, I feel like it's the the first thing that you brag about when you're wearing a dress. Exactly, that somebody, like it's got somebody compliments. Yeah, it's got pockets. <laughs> and, but the thing is, like, so many of the, and I found this out, is like a lot of those pockets, they just seem like somebody just threw a pocket on a thing. Sometimes they're good. Most of the time, it's like, okay, well, at least this is, can hold like my ID and something. So that's good yeah, enough. Good enough. Yeah, yeah. and I'll, I'll take it. Um, so like while I was working at Riot, being really burned out and like, you know, working on like basically digital fashion, I just started wondering what it would take and to sort of make physical product, I guess. Um, and I eventually just quit. Um, I decided that I couldn't, I couldn't do this as a side gig. I just kind of had to do it. Um, and I basically gave myself one year uh, to see where it went. And uh, that one year, I guess, technically starts in December. So I'm almost uh, to that, but I'm actually extending that to like 18 months instead. But um, this year was a wash. Anyway. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so it, back in December 2019, I had this wild idea that I was going to launch this sustainable fashion line in six months, um, which is crazy, by the way. That's like not, that's not a thing. No. Um, yeah, but it doesn't I, sound like I, it. <laughs> I, I'm naive and uh, <laughs> ambitious, I guess. And, um, you know, I was, I was like getting ready for this, like, you know, working on my designs, trying to find manufacturing partners, visited all these warehouses or not warehouses, sorry, visiting all these uh, manufacturing, um, uh, manufacturing partners. And, um, I started noticing in January, late January, these news pieces about a mysterious flu in China. And mm. because of my international relations background and because like I was focused on Asian economics, it was just sort of a, I don't know, it was like an intellectual case study. It was like, oh, interesting. I wonder what this thing will do to the supply chains. I wonder what this thing will do to like, you know, the global economy. Oh, well, it, it doesn't really seem that big of a deal. And then they shut down um, Wuhan, China. And I was just like, okay, there is definitely something going on if uh, China just quarantined a, a city of like 15 million people. Um, yeah. And once like quarterly earnings reports started kind of trickling in around late February, I realized that this was going to be probably much, much bigger than people thought it would be. And that the U.S. Uh, seemed very unprepared for it. Um, so I decided I, I was just I don't know, I because I lived in Asia, I was trying to convince everyone to wear masks. People I was arguing with everyone because back then everyone was saying not to wear masks. And I was just I was frustrated. I was writing 5000 word blog pieces oh on, on medium, you know, <laughs> citing everything, just like trying to get everyone to like, listen, I guess. And I was just like, you know what, I, I'm just gonna do something because I know this is coming. Um, and I have everything I need. And we were already starting to hear about the shortages on the toilet paper and on N95 masks oh on everything. Yeah. And I realized I had the manufacturing partners, I had startup capital, and I could work with people in Los Angeles um, because I live right by the fashion district and that I should just do this. So I basically decided within a week to basically funnel all my startup capital into um, making cloth masks. Uh, and then I launched a Kickstarter to do that. Um, we were like basically fully funded within a week. Um, wow. And I, I mean, theoretically, I would like to say I was first to market, but I mean, I didn't actually go to market, so that's not true, but I was one of the very first um, brands to be able to put out cloth masks because I didn't have to worry about, you know, all my old orders and all my factories and what was going to happen to my spring collection. I hadn't even started. So all I could, I could just go from, okay, I'm not going to release this dress. I'm going to do masks. And um, we were able to start and launch that Kickstarter in, um, April. So that was before mask mandates were even um, yeah, national. Pretty immediate. Yeah. Um, and then so after that, I just, um, we donated all of those mostly uh, around Los Angeles. Um, and I basically decided that we should make a sustainable mask because uh, 
the masks that we made were a pattern that uh, was developed by the mayor of Los Angeles office and some local manufacturers here. And it's it's a good mask, but it's not sustainable. And so most um, most companies use dead stock, which is like leftover um, material, basically, to make mm-hmm. their masks, um, which is good because then they're not, you know, making new masks right. or whatever. No waste. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, cotton masks masks are more sustainable than disposable ones which you know you you have theoretically you're supposed to throw away after every single use and I just I wanted to make one that was more breathable and that actually fit really well because that's really important so we spent time to develop um, a brand new like sustainable mask out of uh, Lyocell which is a which is basically a closed loop um, eucalyptus pulp and um Wow. We haven't spent a lot of t- uh, money on advertising. Actually, like I think I've spent maybe two hundred dollars on advertising, which is like nothing. Um, and I, you know, I think we're doing all right. A lot of people will, a lot of friends will just like buy one to be nice, and then you know, three weeks later, end up buying like ten because they're like, this is actually the best mask ever, oh, wow. and I'm That's buying amazing. it for all my family. And so, like you know, that one sell from your friend is great, but when they're coming back and like being like, no, no, I bought this and it's great, and like you know, they're putting their sort of word on the line. Um, that feels that feels really good to me. And I mean, I think something that like really dawned on me during just this pivot to cloth masks and COVID and everything. And it sort of really made me realize what it was about the UN that I didn't like was I had studied my whole life and, and the way the UN operates is to sort of think only big picture. Like I said, when I heard about COVID, it was just like an intellectual exercise. It was mm-hmm. like, oh, well, how will this hurt the economy? And so when you think about like economy all the time and not like individuals, um, I think you kind of get, kind of like lose how this affects the normal human being. Absolutely. And that's something I really wanted to do with uh, my company as well is to not try to focus so much on changing the world from this big meta level, I guess, but knowing that you can, you can have a very positive impact on individual lives that can sort of help shape the world that the way you want to see it without, you know, kind of losing that human connection. Yeah. You, you were just talking earlier about my previous podcast that just came out. I don't want to spoil it for you, but it really (laughs) relates to this in you know, he was talking about, for him, the most important thing is how he's impacting one single person, right? If he is able to bring joy and happiness to that one person, where it initiated from his own happiness of producing that product, like he know he's he knows he's done his job, right? So I think that that's such a beautiful sentiment is that we're getting down to like you said, that one-on-one connection and making sure that you, I think for me, that's how you drive the most impact, right? It's, it's more personal. It's more direct. Um, I really, I really love that a lot. Thank you. Yeah. I think, um, I think I spent so much time um, on community, like digital community. And when I was in Japan, like literal small communities um, that I, I, and I always loved it, but I never really realized how important it was to me until COVID happened. Yeah. I think I took it all for granted. Um, and when I was suddenly no longer to able to go into an office or to meet and network with other people or see my friends or even, you know, go to my favorite restaurant and talk to the people who work there, it just kind of reminded me that... I don't know, like that whole big picture thing is actually just made up of individual stories. And to lose that is to just like, what's even the point? It's like, not everything is like, you know, an intellectual exercise, basically. Yeah. You were talking about sustainability in particular with the masks. Is that something that you hope to transcend through into the clothing line as well? Yes. Like, so I, I struggle with this, to be honest, because, you know, the um, the startup founder mentality, those, I should be I should be trying to scale like I should be trying to be like the next Everlane or Allbirds or something. That's what sort of the social pressures tell me that I'm s- supposed to do, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But for me, I have a really hard time reconciling the fact that I believe in sort of a more minimalist lifestyle and a more sustainable lifestyle, but I'm also making things. Because um, there's actually no real way to be sustainable while you're making something brand new. There's there's honestly more than enough stuff in the world to never have to buy a new thing. Um, but, you know, I mean, that argument is also kind of pointless because, I mean, we could all live in potato sacks, but we don't. We don't. So um, I, I understand that, like, you know, there's aesthetics and people wanting to express themselves. And like, like I said before, with skins, that was something that was really important to me. So I, I am like trying to figure out how I can run a business that um, focuses on only making what we need to make and only making what people actually want instead of using um, millions of dollars on advertising to try and acquire people who might not actually really want what you're making, but you've convinced them with like a 15% discount that they should buy it. Like that's actually not yeah. what I want at all. Um, and an investor hearing that will probably be like, well, I don't, wanna, I don't want to <laughs> give you money. Oh my God, when am I ever going to see a return? And uh, honestly, I'm, I'm kind of okay with that. Um, I'm not trying to become the next Everlane, I don't think. Um, and I don't consider myself necessarily to be this like avant-garde designer who's got such a vision for the world. I just want to help women who are in the same position as me um, be able to make the choices that are right for them. Uh, personally, I don't buy fast fashion anymore, um, but I completely understand why someone does. Um, and all I'd want to do is help them understand that impact that they're making and see if there's like an alternative for them. And if there's not, that's okay. Yeah. You said you were giving yourself a, a little bit of an extension. When do you first see the launch of it? Just for everybody who's yeah. probably on edge. Yeah. <laughs> I'm probably I'm probably moving away from um, the traditional way that uh, fashion has been working. And it's really funny because as I was thinking this, basically the fashion industry started imploding because of COVID um, mm -hmm. where um, I'll just give a quick overview for any listeners um, who, who don't know how this is, how this has traditionally worked in fashion, but basically, you know, you have um, fashion houses predicting a year to 18 months in advance, what, what is going to be popular. Um, you know, they make those samples, they put it on the runway during fashion week, people decide to buy some of that stuff. Um, they make those products like six months later, it goes to stores. Then it goes on sale like three months later. So something for spring goes on sale or something for the summer um, comes out in the winter, goes on sale in April. And then you get your winter stuff in the summer, which is bizarre. Um, yeah. And as a result, um, it is bizarre. And so fashion houses haven't really been making money for a really long time because of this, because they basically just make stuff to put on sale, um, which is odd. And then you have the situation of, well, we were just making what we were forecasting people would want. And if it doesn't sell, we are going to try and convince people to buy it by putting it on sale. And if that doesn't sell, we're, we're literally going to burn it, which has happened in a, in a few um, oh, big wow, cases really? in the past. Yeah, like H&M, for example, was caught literally destroying their clothes uh, like 10 years ago because they didn't want those pieces going to um, Goodwill, which would ruin their sort of brand, I Image. guess. I guess, yeah. Um, I, they, they've moved away from that, thankfully. But I mean, that that is kind of what a lot of brands do and if it's not literally destroying it it's you know shipping it off um to um, africa as donations which ends up ruining the local economy there because why would anyone buy anything if they're just getting cast-offs um from yeah. somewhere else so it's hurting their local textile <laughs> economy as well so i think the west has basically just been outsourcing our um pollution to other countries, um, not just our production, but our pollution and our waste for decades now. Um, but with um, 
with the sort of new innovations in manufacturing, there are things like you can like 3D, well, not technically 3D print, but you're, well, actually, yes, you're like 3D print a whole sweater now, um, which is crazy. Like, so wild. yeah. And like, you can, you can print on demand, like you can manufacture on demand. So if I were to get like, if I can only sell a thousand things a month, then I only make a thousand things a month. And then there is, there's no waste, which also means I can, um, I can pass that savings on to um, consumers as well. Wow. I had no idea it was that. Um, I mean, I guess I had a hunch, right? Like how could you possibly have anywhere to put thousands of items worth of merchandise that is, you know, that doesn't sell, right? Exactly. Um, but it's so crazy just how kind of convoluted and how kind of <laughs> under the ground surface level nobody really talks about it yeah and i think like i, I don't want to shame people either because when i found this out too it was like well that makes sense it's not like there's like a magic warehouse somewhere that's keeping you know um gucci's stuff from <laughs> 10 years ago like yeah. that doesn't exist so yeah. where does this stuff go i really love um I mean, I, I like that secondhand is starting to kind of make a, a resurgence yeah. through apps like Poshmark, yeah, right? Absolutely. You can go in and buy literally a t-shirt on there that somebody absolutely. else doesn't want anymore. Um, I like stuff like that. Obviously, there's a lot of room to grow there, but I do think that that's important to kind of rethink the way that you are being mindful about your purchasing. Right. And so um, as I was um, saying with Stellari, we don't want to release things in collections um, just for the sake of doing that. So instead of Mm -hmm. being like, here's our summer collection of a hundred things that you may or may not need in the color of the year, whatever that was, um, we're actually planning to, um, the goal would be to be able to release something every month, um, but only if it was something that people wanted. Um, and we're going to just spend a lot of time basically product testing and talking to our communities see, to see what colors people want, what fabrics would they be interested in. And the, it's definitely going to be more expensive, I guess, for, for me um, and would cut into my margin, I guess. But like, again, that's I think that's just something that a responsible commun- uh, company has to start doing um, if we want to tackle sort of the waste problem. The mm-hmm. um, fashion industry is the fourth largest producer of waste um, in the world. So it's, right. yeah, there's, it's like, the way I see it is like me, I'm probably not going to be able to make an impact one way or the other, but what I'd really like to do is sort of start educating my community on ways that they can think about, you know, the purchases they make. And if, if that means they decide that they don't need to buy my stuff and I've convinced them not to buy my things, that's okay. I mean, I'm, I'm honestly okay with that. Again, if investors are listening to this, <laughs> just <laughs> pretend I didn't say that. No, no, it's good. It's a mindset shift. And you're, you're literally teaching people how to rethink about their purchase behavior and what it is that they do with their clothes, even after they purchase it. So I think it's kind of this just all encompassing, you know, holistic mindset, sh- mindset, wow, I can't speak, <laughs> mindset shift. Yeah. That wasn't that hard. <laughs> yeah. I, and, and like, I, we're on this journey too. Like I only started um, paying attention to this stuff like five years ago, to be honest. I was that awful, I would buy like $600 worth of stuff on ASOS, which is based in the UK, and they would ship it overseas to me. And then I would return mm-hmm. like half of it. Like, that's terrible. It's terrible. Um, but I, I did it because it was just like, oh, it's cheap and it's whatever. Who cares? Free shipping, free returns. And then when I like learned about, you know, the carbon footprint of doing something like that and, you know, how wasteful um, the fashion industry is and, you know, the sort of factory conditions where these things are made. I just really started to think uh, more consciously about how I spend things. And like, do I really need to buy a brand new white shirt when I have like five different white shirts just because this one is slightly different? Yeah. Yeah. Really quickly, I want to get into kind of just a couple of general business topics. Yeah. And then we can maybe pivot into this segment that still is yet to be named. But <laughs> I, I 
go through these questions with every single guest. Um, I call it the habits okay. section for now, but we'll we'll think of something more creative maybe <laughs> maybe down the line. Um, but for you, you know, you are a business owner. What what would you say is the most challenging piece of that role for you? I think for me, the most challenging thing, and to be fair, I'm a, I'm a solo entrepreneur, is that I don't have a co-founder. Um, it's not just from a um, splitting work aspect, even though that's a big thing. Um, I think I think for me, it's really challenging because I have no one to bounce ideas off of. Mm-hmm. And like, I have a husband, I have friends, but that's not the same as somebody who's who's in it with you. Um, and so there are times where I will be, you know, mulling over my head over something that I know if I had just, you know, had that office cooler, office cooler, water cooler conversation over coffee or whatever during in a break room and ask somebody, hey, what do you think if we did this? And they're like, oh yeah, that's a terrible idea. Oh, you're right, that is a terrible idea. Like, I don't have that. And it means I get stuck in my head all the time. And I think that's like a huge stressor for me. Um, I think something I have learned um, if and when I start another company is I can't do this alone. So yeah, yeah. I think collaboration is, is a huge asset that I think people often overlook when they, when they have it, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like I, you know, I, I like to think I'm fairly collaborative, but I also know I'm, I'm kind of controlling. So I think at first I was like, oh, well, I don't want to give up control of my brand and my business or whatever. And now I'm sure. like, you know what? Like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't need to own every single decision I make. Yeah. For somebody who, like you, at one point had this like kind of light bulb moment and thought, oh, well, maybe I can make a, a business out of this. What would you say to somebody who maybe doesn't know where to begin taking that idea and actually actually executing it? Um, I think I think what has really helped me is just I mean, everyone tells you this, but like, honestly, it's networking like you would be surprised how many of your friends and even sometimes those weak connections like that ex coworker from 10 years ago, you'd be surprised how many people just want to see you succeed or just want to see someone succeed. Um, And just reaching out and being like, hey, I'm looking for this thing. Do you know anyone who can help? And that's actually how I found everyone who works with me now. Um, And it's it's been amazing. So I think if you have an idea um, of I want to start a clothing line, (laughs) asking around and being like, do you know anyone who's in the fashion industry? Do you know anyone, anyone who sews, cosplayers, anyone who vaguely is in this space because those people can connect you to other people. Yeah. Connections are probably one, one of the, the strongest assets that I think that I've ever had in my career. And I'm not an entrepreneur whatsoever, but yeah, it I is mean, important to just kind of leverage absolutely. where you've been. Yeah. yeah. And like, you know, there's that old adage, like, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And like that, that is true both in like corrupt politics, but also it's just like, you know, getting your feet off, like getting your business launched. Like you might be introduced to a serial entrepreneur who's launched tons of small businesses who, who could point you to a lawyer who can just talk you through some of the really crazy stuff. Cause sometimes the things that are the most overwhelming are some of those weird legal and financial questions that there's tons of people who can help you with that. Some, my hardest part wasn't actually finding factories. It was like trying to figure out the very esoteric rules of starting a business. Yeah. Which, by the way, there's no real like handbook for that. Yeah. I mean, the government attempts to give you a checklist, but the checklist was also like I don't know, 15 paragraphs long. And I'm like, what kind of checks, what kind of checklist is this This is crazy. (laughs) And I feel like at that point, it's just at a basic level of like here, like literally here are the boxes that you need to check in order to be considered a business rather than how do you successfully start a business and actually make it run. There's, there's also a lot of really good, um, there's a lot of really good support networks too. Um, you know, like small business networks for women or for, you know, like um, 
people of color or other um, like you know less advantaged groups that I've I've also looked into um, being a woman and um, a minority um, and there's alumni associations that that do this stuff so I think like just really tapping into your network is probably um, the best way to sort of get this idea validated from other people who've done it and also just some guidance on how to start yeah absolutely all right let's let's get into some habits yeah okay um so what would you say for yourself are some non-negotiables like throughout the week there's maybe one or two things that you have to do for yourself in order to feel like you know balanced um uh, to be perfectly honest I don't think I have many great habits um as I mentioned with working at Riot I was just very good at burning myself out and I think Mm -hmm. I'm still struggling with that now um I I've definitely well I mean to be fair 2020 has been a bit of a burnout but I've burned myself out on um starting Stellari I think multiple times already. So something I think I remind myself that I need is I'm very extroverted. So I do need like social interaction. Um, yeah. At least a few times a week and like, it can't just be on zoom. So it needs to be like a social distance hangout um, in the park with masks on or something like that. And yeah. doing that has done a lot for sort of my mood and my motivation. And I'm, I'm pretty glad that I, um, I kind of like accepted that that's who I am. Um, and that I need that. Absolutely. I'm very similar. I find that people fuel me yeah, for sure. And it definitely kind of resets my energy. And like you said, it just kind of like resets things kind of back to quote unquote normal. So yeah. that you feel like you're not so, especially now isolated. Yeah. You know? I All feel they're kind of yeah. sitting ma- mainly stagnant every single day <laughs> doing the same thing. So. Yeah. I mean, so like my husband is an introvert and he, you know, he gets drained by um, social interactions and like for me, you know, like my cup or whatever is like when I'm alone, I'm like drinking from it and being able to be with other people, they fill it back up. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Um, Do you have any sort of morning or evening routine? Um, Not well. So in the morning when I wake up, I usually read news. Um, I still read like a lot of international news. Um, Just again, I've just always had a passion for international economics and relations. So I still do that. tried to cut down on a lot of U.S. political news because it was very uh, stress-inducing for me. Um, But I still do that. And in the evening, I usually try to just, like, take, like, an hour for self-care, I guess. Um, That's usually... um, I have a very complicated skincare routine. (laughs) (laughs) I love Um, it. That it doesn't take an hour, but it can if I wanted it to. But um, it's like a 15-step routine. Um, Wow. Yeah. (laughs) So I do that. um, That might have to be a follow-up episode. I mean, I would love love to talk about um, skincare. But (laughs) (laughs) I... um, I do that and then like I'll put like a little face mask on or whatever and like just again catch up on the news for the end of the day because um, I figure 12 hours at the end and 12 hours at the beginning is probably a probably good to keep up on basically everything that's happening without having to constantly refresh Facebook or whatever. Yeah I like that you break it up because it's so consuming you feel like you can just there was a point during quarantine where I would have it on basically at all hours of the day on my TV, just in the background. Yeah. And the headlines were distracting, you know, it just, it got me into this really negative space. So I like that you have kind of these segmented places for when you catch up and and learn about what's going on. That's relatively new. I, I used to actually just, I mean, because I used to have to do it for work, just read news all day, every day, basically. So I used to just, you know, here and there would look on my phone when I was walking somewhere or whatever. But uh, like you said, I it's really distracting and it really can mess with your headspace sometimes mm-hmm. too, um, especially if you read something really um, 
you know, uh, distressing. So I basically just, you know, I used to be afraid that if I didn't keep up, I wouldn't know what was going on in the world. But, but like, yeah, that 12 hour, 12 hour, you, there's almost nothing that'll happen that you would miss out on and anything major somebody's going to text you about. So of course, yeah, yeah, you'll get some sort of notification. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, so I always save the best for last. Okay. Um, one of the main things of this podcast for me is helping to redefine the term success. Um, I think that that's so important to kind of break open that barrier that it's kind of just this one definition for everybody. Um, so I always ask all my guests, what does success mean for you specifically? This is, that is a really hard question for me. Uh, I think something I'm personally struggling with myself with something I am personally struggling with is that I have, um, as, as I've mentioned, I've hit all these quote unquote dream jobs and I've hit all these goals that I've made for myself um, throughout my life. And every time I did it, I was just like, was that it? Like, mm-hmm. Okay, I guess what's next or, or worse, I would be like, well, I did it, but I didn't do it right. Quote unquote, I didn't make it to this stage or I didn't become a whatever or get this promotion or launch the biggest thing in the world. So there was always like, okay, you did it, but you didn't do it right. And for me, that's meant that I've, I'm 39 now. The, that means I've spent most of my working life um, hitting goals and then not thinking I succeeded. Um, and I just recently, I recently had my birthday and my husband bought me this um, s- silly story, but he bought me this suitcase that I saw when I was um a teenager in Japan that I just like wanted. And I saw all the like business people and all the ambassadors in Japan carrying it around. And I was like, wow, that's, that must be the best. And it, it is. And, but it's a very expensive, like suitcase. I mean, like it's, it's like a thousand dollars, which is expensive for a suitcase, but you know, in the grand scheme of people having yachts and stuff, it's really not that big of a deal. Sure, and I, yeah. I always told myself like, okay, when I deserve it, when I deserve it, when I deserve it. And I never thought I deserved it. I, the UN job, didn't think I deserved it. Riot Games, didn't think I deserved it. Started my own company, didn't think I deserved it because none of those were successes to me. And I, he just like gave it to me. He's like, you deserve it. Like, he's like, you, you launched a company. When would you have ever deserved this? And so something I'm starting to realize is that success is only a success if you think it is. And like other people... I've never cared that much about what other people thought about me or whether or not I was a success. And so other people calling me a success didn't mean anything. And people calling me unsuccessful didn't mean anything. And so at the very end of the day, it's like, I think a person has to just be okay with like celebrating themselves sometimes. Um, I, I know I was raised not to. So it's been a challenge for me to be like, no, you did good. Like, it wasn't it wasn't an A plus, uh, but you worked your ass off and you got this B plus and that is okay and good job and that was a success. So I think just yeah, for me now, being a success just means that I am content. I'm not expecting like, you know, happiness necessarily. I am content. Um, my husband and my family are loved and supported and that I am able to give back to like a community that I care about. I think that is a success for me now. I really love everything that you said, because <laughs> I think everybody is, it's such a cliche, but their own worst critic or their toughest critic. <clears throat> and for you to have to get to a point where you were validated by somebody who totally believes in you, right? It wasn't kind of just some stranger or somebody who recognized your work. Like that was, that was your point of saying, like, I, I did this, you know? Um, so I, I also, you stole the words from my mouth, of the <laughs> word content. Right. I think that that was the whole time that you were speaking that, for, for me, your definition is a mindset. Right. Um, I, I almost feel like, because I'm a, I'm a gamer, I thought that 
when I was successful, I would know. Like in a video game, you know, there's triumphant music or like, you know, you get like this level <laughs> up, like there's a celebration. And yeah. that celebration isn't going to happen if you aren't going to do it. You know, yeah. like you have to do it for yourself. This isn't a video game. No yes. random person is going to like toot their horn at you. You have to do it. So, yes. and recognizing that like, you might not feel that like, oh my God, this is the happiest moment in my life. Like you might not actually feel that, um, but like, that's okay too. <laughs> of course. They actually, I mean, they say that about um, promotions at yeah. your job too, right? Like nobody's just going to walk up to you and say, you've done such an awesome job. I've been <laughs> watching you this whole time. I'm going to give you a raise and a promotion. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going to give you a massive raise. Exactly. 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 Yeah. So that's, that's a really great reminder. Thank you for being, you know, honest about that. Cause I'm sure a lot of people second guess themselves every single day. And so that's a great reminder that it comes in phases. It's in different seasons of your life, Absolutely. Um, but you'll find it. Yeah. I mean, like right now I'm in a pretty good mood, but I could <laughs> totally see myself in six months being like, I completely failed at this. I don't even know what I was thinking. And, you know, I just, I just like have to remind myself that like there is like it's okay to fail mm -hmm. and it's okay but it, you can still have succeeded at something and then have that thing eventually fail like nothing yeah. is forever so yeah yeah nothing is permanent yeah literally <laughs> <laughs> yeah um well so tell everyone where we can find you um online socials all of yeah that. so um you can find me at um for me personally, is the Janelle MJ um, on Instagram, Twitter, uh, TikTok, I guess. <laughs> and then for Stellari, it's uh, Stellari.com. Um, and on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, we are Shop Stellari. And then for anyone listening, um, if you guys would like to give our sustainable cloth mask a try, um, we'll have a discount code that I'll share with Rachel. Um, and if you love it, I'd love to hear that. If you hate it, please tell us. It's really important to us that the, I mean, the community and the customers are basically the only reason I this is around. So um, we want to hear your feedback so we can iterate on the product and make it even better. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much. That's, yeah, thank that's you. really incredible. Thank you. And thank you so much for being here today. Um, it was so much fun. I mean, getting to know you and, and hearing all about your story. It was very inspirational. And I think a lot of people will be able to resonate as well. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. It was, um, it was a lot of fun. All right, that's it for today. Don't forget to follow along for more on Instagram at you might be a badass podcast and let me know your thoughts about today's show. And I'll see you again, same time, same place next week.